0: Turn in your Bibles, please, to First Corinthians, Chapter Eleven. First Corinthians, Chapter Eleven. We are slowly working our way through. Paul's first canonical letter to the Corinthian church. And we find ourselves in the fourth major section of the book. Here in chapter 11, dealing with gathered worship. The gathering of the people of God to fellowship with the God of the universe. Paul offers instruction for... This gathering. So let's pick up that instruction in verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. The apostle says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear And so eat of the bread and drink uh, of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment. About the other things I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, we praise your wonderful name. And we want to pause and say thank you for giving us that name. The name of Christ. The name child of God. Beloved son. Beloved daughter. You have by your blood and by the breaking of your body. Made it so that we could be heirs with you. Heirs of God. And enjoy all the wonderful blessings of all the precious promises of Scripture and actually be called the children of the Heavenly Father. And so we praise you this morning. You didn't need anything from us. You're perfect. You're unchanging. You're holy. You're wonderful. You, you need nothing. And yet, because of who you are, because of your mercy and because of your kindness and because of your great grace and your steadfast love and your faithfulness to your covenant, you poured out that love for us, even while we were still sinners. And so, Lord, we praise you for your love. Lord, we also want to lift up those who are ministering in your name and uh, being sent out by this church. We especially want to pray for Pastor Guy. Pastor Guy who uh, uh, prepares this week to, to leave for West Africa. Lord, I pray that you would keep him safe and that you would make him fruitful in the ministry that he is doing there in Togo. Lord, I pray that you would bring him back with stories of your grace and your work and your mighty power in all parts and all corners of the globe. Lord, I pray that as we gather around your word this morning that we would discern the body, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit, whom you've given to us and whom we trust is present with us today. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen. Did you know that if you want to get married in a Catholic church by a Catholic priest and have a truly Catholic ceremony, you won't be allowed to take communion? unless you actually become a Catholic. Now, I'm not asking that of you. That was asked of me. Uh, Believe it or not, these are the types of questions you get asked when you're a 21-year-old Bible college student working at the mall on a slow night when the salespeople are standing around waiting to close the store. And yes, it feels even more awkward in the moment than it did for you just a second ago. In our systematic theology classes in Bible college, my professor had been careful to explain the important differences between the Catholic and the Lutheran and the Reformed and the Baptistic traditions and approaches to the celebration of communion in the local church, the debates between advocates of transubstantiation or consubstantiation, the nuances regarding the difference between a sacerdotal or a sacramental approach or a memorial approach or a sharing in the real mystical presence of Christ were all in the front of my mind because I knew I needed to know it for the quiz. But surprisingly to me, my fellow jewelry store salesperson was not interested in the finer points of theological debate. It's sort of the story of your life when you're in seminary or Bible college. You need to know All of this stuff, and you know it has powerful implications for all of life, uh, but almost nobody else cares. She wasn't wrestling with transubstantiation or whether consuming the host conveys some kind of merit or not. She was offended by her fiancé's priest who had had the temerity to suggest that in order for her to take communion at her wedding at the Catholic Church, she had to become a Catholic. My family's Orthodox, she said, but he, his is Catholic. We decided to get married in his church because the building is really pretty. I knew she was speaking to their respective family traditions and not necessarily to any personally held beliefs. Uh, I couldn't believe what she said after that, though. She said, I was so offended after we great, agreed to pay all that money I still can't take communion in their church because I'm not a part of their little club. Now, I've held a lot of jobs in the 11 years that it took me to finish college and seminary, uh, and I've had a lot, and no, it's not supposed to take that long, by the way. And I've had a lot of similar conversations with coworkers who oftentimes are just trying to come up with conversation that they think will interest me because I'm a student of theology. But there was something about that last little phrase that just burned into my brain like a branding iron. It made me angry. They won't let me take communion because I'm not a part of their little club. Now, I wish I came out looking better in this particular story. I wish I could tell you that I skillfully springboarded from that comment into an exposition of the gospel and that I invited her to reconsider her view of the Lord Jesus Christ and repent and believe right then and there. But as my wife can attest when I get angry about something the the gears in my head just kind of grind to a halt and I'm sure that's what happened in that moment and I don't remember exactly what I said but I'm sure it was probably a little bit rude. Not all that clever and not very well received. But that comment did make me angry. I'm not part of their little club. It's not that I'm in agreement with the priests of the Catholic Church, far from it, as you probably could have guessed. No, it's this idea, what burned me up, is this idea shared by so many, unquestioned by my coworker, that the celebration of the table of the Lord is just another one of those silly little rituals that we can conform to our own whims and inclinations, like decorating the Christmas tree or singing happy birthday. And behind all of this is a profound confusion about the answer to this question. Whose table is it? Whose table is it? Many people, including many professing Christians, don't get it. They don't even ask that question. They don't even know that it's a critical question. But in a lot of ways, if we can answer that question correctly and then let that reality sort of flow into the way that we think about our worship of the living God... And that's going to have a profound and precious impact blessing the life of God's church. So here's Paul's burden for the Corinthian church and indeed for all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, including us, don't forget whose table it is. Don't forget whose table it is. We know, I think, that it is the Lord's table, but so often we forget that fact. In today's text, Paul is going to address that reality in three basic movements to which I attach three key words to kind of help you remember. So imagine these three key words as like three coat hooks, and we're going to hang some thoughts on those coat hooks. So here are the three coat hooks. Number one, uh, criticism. Number two, correction. And number three, caution. Criticism, correction, caution. Those are our coat hooks. And so we'll go through them one by one. First of all, consider with me our first key word from verses 17 through 22, criticism. Criticism. Notice that Paul is changing his tone in the beginning of verse 17. If you were here last week, you maybe noticed that. In the first half of chapter 11, he had said, you're doing a great job of following my uh, teachings and you're, you're paying attention to everything that I had taught you and everything that I told you to do, but I just have this one point of clarification. But then here in verse 17, he changes his tone a little bit and he says, in this, I do not commend you. In other words, he goes from clarification to criticism. But what is the nature of the criticism that Paul brings against the Corinthian church? Well, quite simply, their behavior in the celebration of the Lord's table is. Uh, completely at odds with what the table is supposed to represent. And by the way, that's a big deal. Because if you zoom out from what Paul is saying in this larger section of Paul's letter, you can see that the the preaching of the word and the celebration of the Lord's table stand in parallel to one another as the key major features of the worship of the living God when we gather together as a church. In the preaching of the word, we hear from God. God reveals himself to us when we expound the word of God. In the celebration of the table, we respond to that revelation in a way that pleases him. And so you have these two parallel components that he wants to highlight. And Paul's saying, if you mess with this one, if you mess with the response that God calls for, if you change the celebration of the Lord's table, that's a serious, serious thing. And yet it's in this moment designed by God to be the most pristine expression of God's great gospel work of redemption, that the Corinthians, some of them at least, had decided to demonstrate that their minds were focused on something else. Notice the presenting problem in the beginning of verse 17. When you come together, Paul says, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, Paul, if you remember, has already addressed this idea of divisions in chapter 1. There were, excuse me, there were groups, kind of parties, clumps in the church of people that didn't want to get along with the other people and the other groups. And you could almost understand the divisions between people who wanted to follow this teacher or people who wanted to follow that teacher or people who wanted to follow that teacher. But here in chapter 11, Paul takes it a step further. He says that those divisions, those cracks in the foundation of the church, they're not just about people following different teachers. They're actually following the same fault lines as the divisions outside of the church. They're not just doctrinal lines. They're actually socioeconomic lines. In other words, uh, the divisions in the church at Corinth had become indistinguishable from the divisions in the community around them. In the church, can you believe this? Rich people hung out with rich people. Important people hung out with important people. The wealthy hung out with the wealthy. The lowly were kept out in the cold, and poor folks were pushed away. And in the very moment when they were supposed to be celebrating their unity in Christ, they were actually highlighting their division along worldly lines. Now, I think those of us who have belonged to a church for any length of time can probably imagine a scenario like this taking place in the church. It happens. But it might help for us to pause and consider how a typical church in the first century would have been organized to understand what was going on. See, in in Corinth, I'm sure you know this, they didn't have church buildings yet. I mean, the church was brand new. Those church buildings didn't come for another generation or so. And so when they gathered together, they had basically two options. They could either meet outside or they could meet in someone's home. And in Corinth, a a large city, they would typically meet in someone's home. Now, in a typical home of a wealthy person in a city like Corinth, every home had similar features. You had this main hall that was big enough to... uh, Accommodate maybe a hundred people, more or less. Uh, an atrium or a courtyard or a colonnade that would accommodate more people. And when the church gathered, that's where most of the worship service took place because that's what could fit most people. But then, in uh, in in uh, the in another room, there was a there, there was another room that was smaller in every fine house, and it would also have had a separate room that's actually named after the furniture that's inside the room. They called this room the triclinium, okay? Three-tri-clinium, recline. Uh, Because in that room, there was a three-sided table, and people would recline around that table, and you could fit, in a typical triclinium, maybe 10 or 12 people in that dining room. And so, apparently what happens, apparently what was happening was, every Sunday, and keep in mind, Sunday is a work day in antiquity, The wealthy are arriving at the home early, and they're getting this feast together in the triclinium, this feast just for those few people, and by the time the poor folks get off work and arrive at the beginning of worship, their rich brothers are already full and already drunk, and those who were considered less than were left out in the atrium to subsist on lesser fare." generally made to feel as though they were second-class citizens, not only in the city of Corinth, not only in the Roman Empire, but even in the church of God. This is what Paul means when he says in verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Now, sure, you've got some bread and some wine, and you might speak some spiritual-sounding words over it before you chow down, but you're calling it the Lord's supper. It's not the Lord's supper. It's just your supper. It's a supper. It's a meal that you're enjoying you're you're just there to stuff your face you're there to shore up your status as an important person in the community how dare you call it the lord's supper when it's got nothing to do with the lord apparently it had gotten so bad that paul says this whole thing is going to show everybody who's a genuine believer and who's a faker he says that in verse 19 In other words, the stakes are really high. The the way that we're treating the Lord's table shows that we couldn't care less about the church of God. It's humiliating to those who aren't wealthy and it's taking a memorial feast that is supposed to focus us on the Lord Jesus Christ and it's turning our focus towards something completely different. And Paul says, if you're gonna be a glutton, if you're gonna be a self-important slug, then go eat at your own house. Now, I know that Corinth is a little different from Mineralis, Texas, and we don't have a triclinium, and most of us don't have one in our house, right? So uh, we might be quick to say, I'm glad I don't have those problems, but before we say that, let's just stop for a second and think. The issue with the Corinthians wasn't primarily in the details of their celebration of the supper. It was in how that celebration displayed a heart attitude that is completely incompatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. My pastor from a previous church, a man whose life has shaped my own understanding of the gospel in profound ways, Dr. Jim Hamilton wrote in an essay on this passage that, quote, The Lord's Supper is an identity shaping proclamation of the gospel. It's an identity shaping proclamation of the gospel. So think about what that means. When we in in just a few moments take these elements and we hold the bread and the fruit of the vine in our hands and we partake of those things, we are saying something about who we are on a fundamental level. We're saying fundamentally Who I am is a sinner for whom Christ died. I am a sinner that could not save myself. And Jesus allowed his body to be broken. He shed his blood so that I could be redeemed and bought out of the slave market of sin. That's who I am on a fundamental level. That is me. And Paul says, that's something different from what you're saying, Corinthians. You're saying fundamentally your fundamental personal identity is wrapped up in your status in the world. And so the fact is, and we all know this, many so-called Christians don't think that 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 truth that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is really our most fundamental identity. And we think perhaps that our fundamental identity lies in our status in comparison with others. We look down on those who are less than or we uh, kind of envy people that we consider our betters. Or maybe we think that our most fundamental identity lies in our passions, or that our most fundamental identity lies in our skills or our abilities, or that our most fundamental identity lies in our family heritage, or that it lies in our net worth. And we come into church, and instead of doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is to look at Christ... We've got one eye on ourselves and one eye on our neighbor. And we're just thinking about how we stack up in comparison with everybody else. And Paul says, when you think that way, you're not taking the Lord's Supper. You're taking your own Supper. The reason why that person is so offensive to you, that person that sits near you, the reason why you think that you're better than they are is because you have a fundamental misunderstanding about yourself and about the cross of Christ. If we really allowed ourselves to internalize what we're saying our identity is at the table of the Lord, then that would change the way we look at everybody else in the church, wouldn't it? And that's what the Corinthians were doing. And so Paul calls them out, but just like with every other topic he brings up in this letter, Paul doesn't just say, "Okay, here's what you're doing wrong. Now I want you to change your behavior and do better." He says, "Here's what you're doing wrong. Now look at, let's look at some gospel truth that changes our thinking, and then we'll change our behavior in light of that gospel truth." That's what he's going to do here in verses seventeen. I'm sorry, in verses twenty-three through twenty-six. So here's our second key word. Here's our second coat hook correction. Criticism, correction. In these next verses, Paul offers up the core tradition of what is taking place in the celebration of the Lord's table. It's all based on the ordinance given by the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. And if we're willing to pay attention to the details of these verses, we come away understanding that the Lord's Supper, far from being a moment in which we sort ourselves into uh, super-Christians and regular Christians and sub-Christians, is actually a time... Uh, when we do three things. First of all, the Lord's Supper is designed to demarcate the people of Christ. Secondly, to commemorate the work of Christ. And thirdly, to anticipate the coming of Christ. Demarcate, commemorate, anticipate. You say, where do you get that? Well, notice the details of these verses 23 through 26. Paul says, I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. In other words, Paul wasn't sitting in his room one day and talking with the people that he ministered with and saying, okay, well, what what ideas can we come up with to kind of help people understand the gospel? Oh, I know, we should hand out some bread and some juice and that'll help people understand what Christ did for them. Paul didn't come up with this idea. It's not from him. It comes from Jesus. But where did Jesus get this idea? Well, the meal that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples was a Passover meal. Uh, the Passover, of course, was a yearly feast commemorated by God's people from the time of the Exodus, and its rich meaning is spelled out quite clearly in the book of Exodus. Most of you remember what happened. Uh, the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians, enslaved to Pharaoh, an evil tyrant who was taking his cues from Satan, who had made a mockery of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in a recap of the 10 times that God had spoken in the book of Genesis to create the world, uh, once again, God speaks 10 times, not to create, but this time to sort of unravel creation and show that the demonic powers behind Egypt's uh, power were uh, nothing in comparison with the God of Israel. And that tenth word the 10th great sign of God's lordship and covenant faithfulness to Israel was gonna set Israel apart from everybody else because here's what he did. He said, I'm gonna send this great sign over all the land and and I'm gonna destroy uh, those who who break God's covenant. I'm gonna uh, curse those who curse God's people. And he says, in order to be rescued from this plague, you've got to sacrifice a spotless lamb and you've got to take the blood And apply it to the doorposts around the door of your home. And when I see the blood on the doorposts of your home, I'm going to pass by. And everybody whose house had that blood was rescued through judgment. And everybody who didn't have that blood was judged. And the the firstborn in that family was killed. And so what, what Passover celebrates is that the blood of the lamb, the unleavened bread, the Passover feast itself, it becomes this perpetual sign demarcating the people of God. There are those people who have, uh, who, who are passed over, who God saves, who God rescues because they've been uh, placed under the blood of the lamb. And then there are those people who are not under the blood of the lamb. That blood, that lamb, is the substitute that rescues them through the judgment of God. And so what the, what the celebration of the Passover did was it drew a dividing line right down into, through the land of Egypt between the people of God and the people of the enemy. And it's a, it's a similar dynamic to the way that God ratifies the covenant at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. You remember what Skipper read uh, earlier in the service about how God, once again, speaks 10 words, 10 commandments, sort of creating the people of God in those 10 words, the core of the covenant's demands. And in order to seal the covenant, there is a blood sacrifice. And that blood is applied to the altar. It's applied to the people on whom the covenant applied. And the climax is the elders and Moses and the priest climb up to Mount Sinai and they sit down in the presence of God and they eat and they drink in his presence and they have fellowship with the God of Israel. And so what happens is, all of this lies in the background. And Jesus, on the night when he was delivered over, the night when he was betrayed, the night when he was arrested and killed, he brings all of this to the disciples. And in that upper room, in that moment, he says all of that stuff about the lamb all, of, all of that stuff about a blood sacrifice, it's actually all about me. I'm the Lamb of God. The blood of the Lamb was just a symbol. It's my blood that buys you out of slavery to Satan, that rescues you from judgment. It's my blood and my death that takes your place and, and calls you out of the people as the people of God. That unleavened bread, that bread of affliction, as it's called in the book of Deuteronomy, that bread is actually a picture of my body, and, and when it's broken, that's a picture the, of, of my being broken for you, my own sacrifice. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so in that moment in the upper room, when the disciples were gathered around the Son of God in fellowship, like the elders on Mount Sinai, they are beholding the face of God himself and fellowshipping with him. And they would come to understand that the day of the Lord... The day of God's ultimate salvation, his ultimate defeat of Satan, had sort of broken back into the present. And something was about to happen that would begin to change the world. The Lamb of God would be slain to take away the world's sins. And so what is this significance of this event when we celebrate it today? The Lord's Supper demarcates the people of Christ. It defines who we are. That is, just like the Passover feast separated the children of Israel out from everybody else, the Lord's Supper defines and demarcates the people of the Lamb of God today. The Lord's Supper commemorates the sacrifice of Christ. Just like the Passover called to mind the salvation of the Lord, the great redemption that he accomplished in the judgment of sinners and the rescue of slaves, So the Lord's Supper reminds us that sin was judged and Satan was defeated and sinners were saved in the body of the Lord Jesus. We're told in the book of Hebrews that that we're able to go into the holy place and have fellowship with God through the veil. And what's the veil? It's his flesh. It's his broken body that brings us into fellowship with God so that we're able to ascend not not to Mount Sinai with its demands, but to Mount Zion where we sit down and dine with God. And that leads us to the third thing we do in the Lord's Supper. Yes, it it demarcates us as the people of God. Yes, we commemorate the work of God in Christ. But then thirdly, it's a time when we anticipate. When we anticipate the day when we will enter into his rest, into his promised land, into his great palace, the holy city, teeming with life and joy and everlasting Peace and wholeness, and free from grief, and lacking in nothing. When faith gives way to sight, and we're no longer going to be waiting, but simply awestruck at the glorious and holy vision of a God whose perfections are beyond belief and whose mercies never cease. So, what is the Lord's Supper? It demarcates the people of Christ, it commemorates the work of Christ, it anticipates the coming of Christ, that day when we will share. His presence. In the celebration of the supper, all of God's people visibly and outwardly affirm their identity as members of a new covenant, a covenant sealed by the blood of Christ and ultimately fulfilled in the day when Christ returns. There is nothing like the Lord's supper. Even the preaching of the gospel doesn't do what the Lord's supper does. In fact, that's what it's for. It's for everybody. uh, The preaching preaching of the word. Anybody can hear the preaching of the word, but not everybody can celebrate the Lord's table because the Lord's table is for those who are in Christ. So what does it do? It's an ordinance that marks off the people of the covenant as truly Christ's people. It calls for a decision. It constitutes a response for every single Christian, not just the preacher, not just someone who happens to be ministering publicly that day, but every single believer and ask the question, are you in Christ? Are you a believer in Jesus? Do you have what we are celebrating in the Lord's table? And it asks us to respond. And that is for everyone, young and old, rich and poor, great or small. So it's this leveling ordinance. It reminds us that we're all on the same level. That there are no super Christians and sub-Christians and normal Christians. We're all just in Christ. Unified and one. And so it is a holy, powerful, awesome ordinance. Ordinance, it is a ceremony that demands our reverence and our worship and, yes, our fear of a holy God. And that leads us to the third key word. Criticism, correction, and thirdly, caution. Caution. The Corinthians had failed to appreciate the gravity of the celebration of the ordinance. They were were actually taking Christ's symbol designed to proclaim Christ's message. Christ died for me. And they were using it to convey something else. They were using it for their own purposes. And Paul says in verses 27 through 34, basically, if you do that, if you take the symbols of Christ's body and blood and refashion them for your own purposes. If you mock this meal, if you despise Christ's body, the church, in the moment of solemn solemn celebration, that you will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You say, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't sound too good, does it? It's not something you want to be. You do not want to be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let me be clear what Paul is saying. He's saying that it's possible for someone to profess faith in Jesus Christ, to say outwardly, I'm a Christ follower, but to be so utterly unmoved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he or she has no qualms about disrespecting the high and holy celebration of the Lord's Supper. And if that's the way you approach this table, Paul says, then you may not actually be a true believer in Christ at all, because true believers believe. True believers recognize what this is. And so you've got to be careful. You don't want to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, You can't say, I believe in Jesus, and then turn around and mock the sacrifice of Jesus. That doesn't make sense. What's more, you're making things worse for yourself because you are searing your conscience against the one thing that brings salvation, the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord. So in other words, you're guilty of the same thing that the chief priests and the scribes are in sending Jesus to the Roman guards to be killed. You're guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of this in Hebrews chapter 6. He says... If you're doing this sort of thing, you've tasted the heavenly gift. In other words, you've heard the gospel and you've actually participated in the celebration of the Lord's table. And and if you're that person and you still say, "I don't believe this isn't this is actually just not meaningful to me at all," then what you're doing is you're like re-crucifying the Lord of glory. He's not saying Jesus goes back and suffers a second time. He's saying you become guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, and you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself, because you're making a mock of the one thing that saves you from sin. So instead of the Lord's Supper being a blessing, a reminder that you're no longer a slave to sin, that you have access to God through the veil, the flesh of Jesus, that you will one day dine with God in the new creation, it becomes actually a condemning ordinance for you, and it will bear witness against you in the day of Christ. In other words, if you're not a believer in Jesus, if you don't bow to him as your Lord and Savior, if you're not a Christ follower, then don't partake of the Lord's table. Don't make a mockery of the body of the Lord and his shed blood. Because if you do that, what you're doing is you're making things worse for yourself. You are mocking the judge of all the earth, and you are mocking the one thing that Christ has provided so that you can be saved and rescued and welcomed into the kingdom of God. Don't do it. In the Corinthians case this had led to the death of some and the sickness of others. God takes it that seriously. In the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit warns the Church of Thyatira along the very same lines. The Church of Thyatira there in the book of Revelation, there some of them are following the teachings of a false teacher, a woman who I'm not sure specifically what she was teaching, but she was spreading lies about the gospel and many had been carried away. And so the Holy Spirit warns the church in Thyatira and says basically, if you don't repent, I'm going to throw you onto a sickbed and those who follow this false teacher, they're going to be killed. This is serious. I don't think the Holy Spirit was saying, oh, okay, well, if you didn't understand the Lord's Supper, I'll just take you home to heaven early. That's not what he's saying. These are words of judgment. These are words of warning. He's saying, I- I'm sick of your hypocritical unbelief, and I'm not putting up with it in my church. I am lopping off the dead branches, and I'm throwing them into the fire. And Paul says the same thing had actually taken place in the church in Corinth. There were some fake believers who were partaking of the Lord's Supper, but they were not the Lord's children. And God had said, you know what? I have watched this for long enough. I am done. That's why I warn you every time we take the Lord's table to examine yourself. Because this is a serious, serious ceremony. A serious, symbolic meal. Not to be taken lightly. So let me be really clear. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you know we are glad you're here. Our whole goal is to tell you what Christ has done so that you might be saved, so that you might be forgiven of your sin, not because of works of righteousness that you've done, but according to his mercy because what Jesus has done. The only qualification for you to receive that is you've got to be a sinner and need it. That's it. And it's received like a gift. It's just a gift. It's a free gift. You just believe it. You just receive it. But if that's you, if you're not believing, then do not partake of the Lord's Supper. It's only going to hurt you. Because, and I say this because I care about you, if you do that, you are what you're doing is you're testing God. You are putting God to the test, and that's not something you want to do. You'll find out he doesn't play games. He is merciful and gracious, and he shows steadfast love to a thousand generations, but he will die no means clear the guilty. And if you make a mockery of the one thing that can save you from your sins, the broken body of Christ and his blood, then you are asking for judgment. And Paul says, instead of inviting the judgment of Christ, why don't you exercise a little discernment to, towards yourself? If we would judge ourselves, then we wouldn't be judged. That's what he says. Now, I don't think Paul means to say, just by way of clarification... That if you're a believer, you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper until you've remembered every last little sin that you've done the last two weeks, and if you forget even one, then you're going to like be struck by a bolt of lightning as you walk out the door. That's not what Paul's saying. Sometimes we get a little overly introspective in our celebration of the table. No, what he's saying is look at your life and ask yourself, am I truly in the faith? Am I really discerning the body and the blood of the Lord? Is this my testimony? And by the way, one of the ways... If, you're, if that's you, if, if your faith is just weak and you're just kind of limping along and you're struggling, one of the ways that God strengthens feeble faith is in the celebration of the Lord's table. I can tell you from personal experience, there have been many times I've come to church discouraged, confused, And then we've had this moment of decision where it's like, do you believe in Jesus as your savior? Do you believe that he died for your sins and rose again? And I just had this thought in, in my heart, the Holy Spirit bore witness with my spirit and said, yes, I believe that. You are a child of God. And it sort of resets us. It reminds us that the Christian life flows out of the work of Christ and not our own ability to measure up. See, what Paul is communicating to the Corinthians when he offers this sharp criticism, this clear correction, this word of caution, is that believers in Jesus need to just remember whose table it is, that it's not our table. It's not a table that belongs to Indian Creek Baptist Church. It's certainly not a table that belongs to Pastor Jake. It's not a table that belongs to you or me. It's Christ's table. And in just a few moments, I'm going to invite you to examine yourself, and then we're gonna partake of the Lord's Supper together in unity as the body of Christ. That doesn't mean that you have to be a member of Indian Creek Baptist Church in order to enjoy this celebration with us. What it means is that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've made a public profession of that faith by being baptized according to the scriptures. It means that you're really a believer and that you your testimony is that Christ's body is broken for me and his blood is shed for me. And what what we need to remember is that this ordinance doesn't belong to anybody but Jesus. I don't have the authority to keep you from the table if Jesus welcomes you. And I don't have the authority to invite you to the table if Jesus says to stay away. Because it's his table. I don't have the authority to make this about something that it isn't. It's not something we customize to fit our agenda. It is Christ's table. And so, what I want to do right now is invite you to just remember that for a moment with me. So, would you bow before the God of heaven and just take a moment to remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ with me for just a moment? Father, thank you for inviting us into your banquet hall and for laying out a great feast that we might partake. Thank you for giving us access to your family through the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray fervently right now for any who are in this room who are not in Christ. Any who do not embrace the sacrifice that Christ had made. We just ask that your Holy Spirit would come and convict of sin and convict of the truth that Jesus died for sinners and rose again so that you might save them. Lord, for all of us, I pray that you would give us the ability to discern the body and to remember who we are and to anticipate the day when we will gather in your presence. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.